Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comedy about movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. This week we'll be skipping straight past the usual news segment again, but you will be able to hear us discussing the news from this week in a little bit more detail on a bonus San Diego Comic-Con episode. Um... And instead, that means we'll launch straight into our discussion today of Sam Raimi's 2004 film, Spider-Man 2. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And guys, at this point on the big screen, I have seen many different Peter Parkers. Um, I've I've seen three of them, in fact. But what I haven't seen is any other spider characters. And even when I read the comics, I can't quite get my head around how these other spider characters have different powers or what their different powers are. So specifically Spider-Woman and Miles Morales, Ultimate Spider-Man, what are their powers that are different to Spider-Man's? And how come all these spider characters have slightly different powers in the first place? Um... I don't know about Spider-Woman, maybe James can give a bit more detail about Spider-Woman, but the simple answer with Miles, and I can't remember if this was explained in the comic or if they just said it in interviews, was that he was bitten by a slightly different type of spider. Um, So he got a (laughs) slightly different set of powers, so that's why he's got his invisibility and his venom blast, uh, that are the two main differences that he has. Was it not a radioactive spider then, was it? No, it was still... it was. It was from the same set of experiments because it's it's not radioactive in Ultimate Spider-Man. It's it's genetically modified, like in the movies. Ah. Um, and Peter Parker got bitten by Spider Number Zero from the Osborne experiments, and Miles got bitten by Spider Number Forty-Two. And the only reason I remember it's Forty-Two is because they used Forty-Two. Um, and <laughs> it's you know it's just that it was a different breed of spider, just a, a different genus or whatever. The off-the-page explanation is presumably just to make it a bit more interesting. Yeah. Um, you you know, and, and so people come up against him who would assume him to have the exact same powers, so then he goes invisible or he zaps them and they're surprised by it. So you know. Yeah. So sticking with uh, Miles just for a moment, so you said Venom Blast and the kind of invisibility cloaking or whatever. Yeah. Um, does he have all of Spider-Man's powers and then those, or is there anything that he's lacking? I think he does. Does he have Spider-Sense? I think... 
think he's got spider sense. He's I got, don't know if it they works. must exactly all have spider way. sense, he, right? He doesn't um, have the kind of giant spikes in the forearms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little little, little J. Michael Straczynski joke there. <laughs> Fulfilling the quota. Um, spider Woman, James, do you have any, any details on what she can do? Yeah, her powers are... She's got the wall crawling. Um, okay. She can do a kind of venom blast, which is like an energy burst. And she can fly, like spiders can. Oh, she can fly? Yeah. Right, I mean, originally, okay. originally, she could glide quite well. And then at some point, like kind of Superman style, that became, oh, now she can fly. And they <laughs> sort of retroactively explained it as having her powers beefed up so she could properly get airborne. But yeah. <laughs> there have been several Spider-Woman characters, so they all link up in different ways. Yeah, because I mean, there's one in Alias, isn't there? Um, yeah, that's the Jameson's second daughter. Oh no, that's the, yeah, that's the third. The other ones that's in there the as well. <laughs> Julia Carpenter is the second, and she's in Alias as well. And Spider Gwen is technically a Spider Woman, but I think she just has Peter Parker powers. Yeah, because yeah, she she got bitten by the spider instead of Peter in her yes. universe. So. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure if Julia Carpenter is in Spider in Alias actually. Jessica Drew is definitely in Alias, isn't she? Uh, Jess- uh, Jessica Drew is Madam Web Matty. is. Uh, Matty someone? Matty Franklin. Matty Franklin, uh, yes. yeah. So it's the first and third Spider-Women. Yeah. And then they go visit that old woman as well. That's Madam Webb. Yeah, that's yeah. Madam Webb. Right, okay. It's very confusing. Lots and, there, <laughs> and then, and and then there's, there's all the girl. spider... There's who, sorry? <laughs> there's Spider-Girl, um, who is uh, Peter and Mary Jane's daughter from an alternate future timeline. Oh, is that, she... is that Mayday Parker? Yeah. Yeah, she yeah, had all she of... Cool. She has all of Peter's powers, except she's also got the ability to, like repel herself from walls as well so she can sort of jump um yeah i mean because i met a lot of these characters reading the spider-verse crossover and then so mm-hmm. there were obviously all of these just kind of pretty much just spider-man but from a different universe so you've got <laughs> like peter porker i guess who seems <laughs> to just have peter parker's powers but he also <laughs> happens to be a pig i love peter porker you guys so does marvel <laughs> my 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 favorite sort of uh you know sort of expansion or or extrapolation of um of the kind of the spider powers it was one of these things where someone came up with a really great idea and then the good part of it the explanation never actually really made it onto the page which is um kane who then became scarlet spider so you would have met him as scarlet spider in spider-verse i think um originally in the during the clone saga and won't go into it in too much detail um although weirdly it's going to become slightly relevant later on in in this episode um but Kane was a mysterious masked villain in the early stages of the Clone Saga. And he was massively strong and um, had this thing where he could leave a burn mark on people's faces when he murdered them that was called the Mark of Kane. It kind of left this, this hideous scarring. Um, and then it turned out partway through the Clone Saga that he was actually the first kind of partly failed clone of Peter Parker. Um, and I, I remember reading there's there's a really good blog that's called The Life of Riley that's a kind of blow by blow account of the Clone Saga from behind the scenes um, and in that somebody explained that it never made it onto the page but the explanation for Kane's powers was that all of his powers were essentially an over exaggerated version of Peter's powers and the mark of Kane was just the sticking effect of Peter's hands when he climbs a wall uh. but just that it was incredibly strong so it left this burn on people's faces and I 
I always thought that was quite a neat extrapolation of you know the neck, the logical yeah. conclusion like of Peter's he, powers. He could also see the future very. That's right, slightly, and it was which and was that pretty, was just Spider Sense. Yeah. It was Spider Sense extrapolated, yeah. And it was like that's a really great idea. Why did you put so much rubbish on the page and you didn't put that explanation <laughs> on? There? You see, I still, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've explained it to me on multiple occasions. I still don't understand what the hell happened in the Clone Saga, and. <laughs> Uh, I I didn't even know that Kane and is it Ben Riley? Yeah. See the yeah. I did I didn't know they were not the same character. <laughs> so much work still to do, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good job that it's not still relevant in comics today. <laughs> Just when you think you've got your way into comics, then actually you say it's not relevant today. Um, the, the latest chapter in Dan Slott's yeah. ongoing yeah. attempt to bring back all of the '90s is that they are doing something that is in some way related to the Clone Saga. Yeah, it's it the was, next big Spider-Man event. It was slightly laced with sarcasm that comment. Oh, okay. Seth, <laughs> I look, look at, I looked at that and went, "Oh no!" <laughs> well, I can't read that then. <laughs> <laughs> okay well um that was some spidey explanation um we didn't even get to silk and i don't want to talk about her because i find her very interesting um so um yeah that that was that was good spidey explanation and where we're gonna real deep dive on spidey for the rest of the episode because we're going to talk about one of the movies that is generally considered to be one of the greatest superhero movies ever made and 13 years on, 12 years on, 12 years on, 12 years on now, we are going to look back at that film and see whether with that kind of remove, it does still stand up as one of the greatest films ever made. So let's take a quick listen to the trailer for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength, makes us noble even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most. Barker! Where you been? Looking for you all morning. You're late. Always late. You're fired. Look at you, Peter. Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. I know I'm trying. So where you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend. Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do, do you love me or not? No matter how hard I try, I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay. I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married. I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. You look different. I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to. I like seeing you tonight, Peter. Now to the main event. Octavius is going to put Oscorp on the map in a way my father never even dreamed of. Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. You take Spider-Man's pictures. Where is he? He's taking me off your loyalty to Spider-Man and not to your best friend. Ah! Bring Spider-Man to me. How do I find him? Peter Parker. Find Spider-Man, or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. Okay, so that was the trailer for Spider-Man 2. Um, Seb James, here's the thing that I am just dying to find out. For you, A, 
Is this still, in your opinion, a better film than Spider-Man? Is this, in your mind, the best Spider-Man film? Because I don't think the other three have any shot at that title. Um, and B, do you think it is in in contention for or potentially the greatest superhero movie thus far? I It's definitely the best Spider-Man film. And I think it's probably, I might even go so far as to say it's the best non-Marvel Studios film. Like I, I was going to say... I was going to say kind of that, but with a slightly different qualification, which is that I think Superman, it's probably right? the best. No, I just I think it's probably the best solo uh, character superhero film because I think of I think Avengers and possibly Guardians edge it, but as as a, as a film about a solo lead character, I I don't think this has been topped by Marvel yet or anyone else. I can I would disagree with that on the basis of Iron Man's one and three, but otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I think I think the basic point is it's still up there. It's I I I don't think I mean, there's things we'll get into that I can look at that 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 you know maybe don't look as good as they did back then. But in general, I think it really really stands up. It really is one of the best superhero films ever made, as as it was back in two thousand and four. I found this rewatch very interesting because I guess this is the first time that I have watched a Tobey Maguire. Spider-Man film when there was more to compare him against than just Andrew Garfield (laughs) as the Amazing (laughs) Spider-Man movies. So we've seen Tom Holland now. We've got an idea of where Spider-Man Homecoming is going. Um, And I think the thing that I settled on when I was watching this movie was this is the best Spider-Man movie, full stop. It's not my favourite. My favourite is still the first one. That I, I have just such a deep affection for that film for the age I was when I watched it and probably the repeat viewings that I had of that film that I didn't of this just because I owned the first one on DVD for a lot longer. Um, and, and yeah, and I think there are there are little things here and there um, and I think, you know, the, the first one, it, Dead Sense of the Movie, is... Toby Maguire, he's he is um I think he's better in the first movie, in fact. Um oh, really? I, I, I think he's yeah. much better in this one. I think this I is was gonna say, I think one. I think everyone who comes back is comes back better in this movie, and that even goes for Kirsten Dunst. Uh, yeah, I I, <laughs> I I yeah, I, I would probably buy into that. I just think I don't I and maybe it's not that Toby Maguire's not good, it's just that I didn't feel that he got to do as much of the fun side of spider-man this is a very for it for a movie that on its surface is quite bright and light-hearted it's quite angsty for the lead character yeah um, but then but Spider-Man it doesn't comics. feel like that weirdly so i just i just feel like you don't get your kind of you don't get your you don't get quite as much of the fun web-slinging and discovery of abilities and all that kind of i think i think there's a bit more frothy stuff in the first movie than there is in this um, I just, I just think for me, like tonally, this is as close as mm. they've ever come to doing a Spider-Man comic. Like there is that angst, but it's still upbeat, and like that's, you know, that's and there the are still jokes. That's the, that's the all ages Marvel like, tone. In the lift, and you know, everything with Jonah, and um, there's, there's definitely still gags. Um, but, I mean, everything, what you everything don't... with Jonah. Speaking yeah. of that is. <laughs> 
that that is comic book movie perfection right there. Yeah. Every scene he's in, he kills it. I mean, he's good in the first one, but this is this is the J. Jonah Jameson show. Every second he's on Just screen, every time you think of any sequence he's in, yeah. The like, funniest, the funniest scenes, the funniest lines in the movie are all his. I'm just, I'm just laughing at your wife says she can't find her checkbook. Thanks for bringing me the good news. It's <laughs> such a stupid gag, but it's just it's everything. He oh, sells Spider- absolutely Spider-Man, everything. Spider-Man, he, he was the hero and I turned everyone against him. Where's this? He stole the suit. He's a he's a menace, I tell you. See, my my favourite bit is just at the, in the wedding where he says, like, tell her not to open the caviar. Mainly because that reveals that he did spring for the caviar. Yeah. It's very touching. Uh, and, and also, of course, the line that we used as the post-credit sting at the end of last episode about um, Otto Octavius ends up with eight <laughs> arms and eight limbs. What are the chances? It's, uh, yeah. Uh, I think last time we did Spider-Man, we waited until right at the end to give J. Jonah Jameson his props, and it's probably appropriate that we're doing it right up top here, because <laughs> it, is the, it is, I think, my single favourite piece of comic book casting ever. And it's, you know, for, for everything that J.K. Simmons has gone on to do since, and obviously this, you know, in he's one of these character actors who suddenly in his later career has become a big star. Like, like his name sells things now in a way that it didn't used to because he was, you know, just a renowned character actor. But for me, he will always be Jonah. Anything else that he does, he's yeah. J. Jonah Jameson. And he always will be. And, and now he's Commissioner Gordon. So, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, I mean, that could be great. I just think it's uh, it's tinged with disappointment because I just badly wanted him back. Yeah, who who does that role if not him? I mean, Mm. the obvious answer is Michael Keaton, Um, (laughs) but it it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. (laughs) Gary Oldman. (laughs) I get the feeling that that would be terrible. Pat Hingle. Just naming other Commissioner Gordons, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so, so we're all kind of on the same page that this is a really great superhero movie, the best Spider-Man movie, and I think this this will probably be one of those podcasts because sometimes I think you know we we can get bogged down in sometimes the stuff that doesn't work about a film is more interesting than the stuff that does and it can sound like we don't like a film as much as we do and I think there are going to be little things that we can pick at here but honestly what does work about this film is is so fascinating to dig into that I don't think we're going to find <laughs> too many distractions um, but let's do what we did for the first Spider-Man film which was to dig into a bit of the backstory in fact it's always fun to dig into the backstory with Spider-Man films because we did that with The Amazing Spider-Man and that film always been Spider-Man 4 as well. But this film has a literal backstory. Because Tobey <laughs> Maguire almost was not Spider-Man in this. He was like we almost got a different guy in the spandex. Mm. Um Tobey Maguire really hurt his back, you guys. It was it was looking pretty serious for a while. And Kirsten Dunst happened to be dating an actor you might have heard of called Jake Gyllenhaal at the time. And talks got pretty advanced that Jake Gyllenhaal was almost our Spider-Man in this movie. I didn't. I wasn't even. I mean, when you say talks got advanced, I thought it was to the extent 
that he'd pretty much agreed were it not for the fact that Maguire recovered. Is that not the yes. case? Did they not quite I, get as far as... I I'm thought he had sure actually that, basically signed on. That, I'm you pretty know, sure that there was the basically a money offer on the table. And, um, yeah, it was just Tommy Maguire going, no, it'll be all right. Um, <laughs> how do you think this movie would have gone down with Jake Gyllenhaal? I mean, because he, he's notoriously as well never... He's not done that many kind of franchise movies. He it was a big deal when he did Prince of Persia, and that didn't go well. Do you think? Do you think it would have? It would have helped the film, or do you think it would have changed very much at all? I mean, I do. I mean, as we said before, I do think this is Maguire's strongest performance out of the three. Um, that said, I'm not sure how much we would have lost without him I think there's I mean actually if anything now that I think about it I think some of his best stuff actually comes in the third one and it's stuff that people hate but we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the third one I think he's really funny in the third one um, and I think you know where I think where Maguire is at his best in all three of these films is when those moments when Peter is being a bit lame like when he's just a, a lame gawky nerd like yes. Maguire is really good at, at cringy embarrassing nerd moments and he and he gets a few of them in each film and I think Gyllenhaal is that little bit more straight down the line and you know it, so in that sense we wouldn't have lost that I think what Gyllenhaal might have pulled off better would have been the more serious stuff and Maybe the romantic stuff. I mean, you know, particularly if he was going out with Dunst at the time, he might have had a bit more chemistry with her. Because um, I still find almost every scene between Peter and Mary Jane in these films like excruciating. I really do. I just they're you know so awkward. In a way, though, I think they work for me. And I, I mean, I said I think I love Kirsten Dunst in the first movie. I think the the kiss in the first movie is a legitimate all-time Hall of Fame moment in superhero cinema. Um, and I like her as Mary Jane. Weirdly, outside of that one scene, which is really sexy in Spider-Man, there is a, like a sexlessness to their relationship and it feels kind of pure and romantic and almost like it's the two best friends in the world who want to be together rather than <laughs> rather than two people who want to you know rip each other's clothes off it's like that kiss is the sexiest thing that can possibly happen between those two characters and i don't know that kind of feels right to me in this context i i, I don't feel like i feel like i kind of need two characters who are i don't know who have a, like a tony stark pepper Potts kind of relationship it, it feels it feels right for this movie and this version of spider-man the way those two characters interact. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree with that. Like, I I think for a character like Peter Parker and Mary Jane, for those characters, like you, you don't want it to be sort of, you know, porn star heat or anything. You want it kind of fairly chaste and romantic. And I think that's kind of where they where they pin it in this movie. See, because I always found it weird when I found out that she was this, like, supermodel in the comics and I've seen the way she's drawn sometimes and the, you know, outcry from the horrible misogynist nerds who thought that Shailene Woodley wasn't attractive <laughs> enough to play her in the... Shailene Woodley not being attractive enough to play anyone is absurd. Um, but 
I, I always found it strange that Mary Jane was that character because to me these were, like you say, this kind of chaste, loving relationship. Um, and maybe it is that because for me, kind of these movies are the urtext for Spider-Man as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> this is this is my reference point mm. for all for all Spider-Man going forward. And although I've read stuff in the comics, this is still what I refer back to. So. I mean, I th- I think we said last time, didn't we, that like... Toby Maguire is a good version of a certain Peter Parker, but Kirsten Dunst isn't really a Mary Jane in any recognisable sense. Mm. Like, I think that's still the case, but they've both kind of grown into their roles in this movie. Yeah, and I guess because the first movie has done the heavy lifting in terms of, okay, this you might have been expecting a different Mary Jane, but that's not the one you've got. And so by the time you come into this movie, you know what to expect. And I don't know. I, I I was certainly fine with it in both of the films, but I don't know whether you found her any more bearable as a not Mary Jane character in this one. <clears throat> um, I mean, she is better in this one than in the first one. I do just I don't know why it is that I find her quite irritating in these films, but um, you know, she at least has a bit more to do in this one. Um. I do. I find it weird. It's a. I mean, it's jumping right to the end. But I think the the confused way in which the character is written is summed up by the fact that, like, it's treated as a revelation when she sees Peter without his mask on as Spider Man, whereas so much else of the film seems to point towards her having figured it out at the end of the first film. You know, even down to when that scene when she asks him to kiss her because she wants to to test something out, and it's like it's obvious, like yeah. she's pretty certain that he's Spider Man at that point. Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, the way that she reacts to him throughout the film suggests that she doesn't think that he's got a realistic excuse for being so flaky and not being around. And it's like, well, well, do you know or do you not? You know, and I think actually, again, we'll maybe get into it a bit later, but the film does that side of things much better with Aunt May later on in the film. Um, like, I'm, I'm, I'll get into it now, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that by the end of this film, Aunt May knows that he's Spider-Man. Yeah, she must um, know. It's a, there's that scene where she basically gives him a pep talk, and it's with like, the, yeah, With the little the, kid across the street. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's like that. Scene. Yeah, and so, and that works really well as a progression. You can see where she figures it out, and then you can see what she does with the knowledge, and why she doesn't let on, and that all really works. Whereas with Mary Jane, you've got this, does she know, doesn't she know, and then right at the end, um, oh, she sees him without the mask off. Oh my God, it's a big shock. And then she says to him, yeah, I think I kind of knew all along. And it's like, well, did yeah. you? <laughs> well, I think she does kind of know a lot. I think that's the reason she's willing to give him, as cut him as much slack as she is, is because she suspects that his excuse might be a really, really legitimate one. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of bought that. Um, but you're right, it definitely works a lot better with Aunt May. And in relation to that scene, I mean, I think one thing that this film gets really right consistently is its use of kids around New York. All mm-hmm. of the children that Peter or Spider-Man interacts with, the kind of... Mm. You, it's you see Spider-Man through a child's eyes and you see him as a hero who would inspire these little kids. And um, 
you get some really great fun little performances well, from them as they pop up throughout the film and it's kind of fairly consistently every so often there will be a child interacting with Spider-Man and it it really yeah, helps it happens, frame the it hero. It happens like three or four times, doesn't it? Throughout yeah, the I mean, there's like... the, the bit right at the start, and it's it's where the film hits a point for me, and particularly rewatching it now, where I just think, man, these films are just at an absolute peak of of confidence in exactly what they're doing. And it's right at the start when he's doing the pizza delivery, and it's oh, he's going to lose his job, he's got to make the pizzas in time, and then he then you know he fails because of the fact that he's gone and rescued these kids from a runaway truck, and you just mm. get this this little moment where he rescues these kids and he you know i think does he make some kind of quip about don't play in the street or something like that yeah Um, and then he swings off and it's like you know at that point that on the one hand you know down on his look peter parker has just lost his job because he's done this but by the same token he's spider-man and he's out there being spider-man and saving people and it's just the film is just singing at that point and it's it's just been able to launch into this opening that is just completely confident about where it is with the character and where it is with the tone and I it's did, just great. When, when I was watching it, I made a note, like, that whole sort of sequence, I think, up until pretty much uh, when he gets the bugle. Like, they do the whole thing. They, like, go through his, his life with jobs and school and his friends. And, like, they just hit beat after beat of, like, definitive sort of Spider-Man moments. Mm. And, like, I, I would mean, say that... the whole sort of 15, 20 minutes is just basically perfect. That opening 15, 20 minutes is what's so impressive is you're right. You're hitting these like great Spider-Man moments. You're like, and, but you're hitting them as like a Spider-Man Peter Parker dichotomy, which is what this film is going to be about. So you're setting up thematically everything that's going to be pushing through the film because this is a sequel. You're not having to do any heavy lifting, but we are getting gentle reminders about every if you haven't seen the first film, here is kind of like a quick sit through. Peter Parker is also Spider-Man. He has this life where he's not too successful, but then he puts on the suit and he's a superhero. He's struggling to balance between the two. He's got some beef with his best friend because of Spider-Man. Um, he can't be with his um, with the girl he loves because he's Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man is the only way that he's able to make money through the Daily Bugle. Um, and then we get kind of... It's only after all that stuff is done that someone's like... Uh, it's, in fact, it's during the James Franco scene, isn't it, that we say, oh, and um, I know this other professor. Maybe I could introduce you. <laughs> or is that... Or, or no, it's not even then, is it? It's with um, Dylan Baker. It's with Dylan Baker, yeah. He mentions Octavius. But also as well, just in, in that thing of how the film picks up from the first one, you've also got that opening credit sequence, which is just... Why have mm. more films, you know, more films based on comics? Why have they not hired renowned comics artists to draw a summary of the first film to be their <laughs> opening credit sequence? And Who this was back. This uh, Alex Ross um, of Kingdom oh, Come. You would have. Read. I should. I should have um, known because they are fantastic and like because they're painted and realistic. And yeah, yeah this, this was this was when Alex Ross was actually a big deal. This wasn't when he was just doing like Green Hornet covers for Dynamite. You know, this was like <laughs> Alex Ross at this point was still one of the biggest names in comics it was like if you if you were a fan of of marvel comics or whatever going to see this film that would come up and you'd be like oh wow it's alex ross has done these paintings at the <laughs> and they really nicely you know sum up the first film yeah. for me it's just it's just a, an incredible sense of confidence in a story that's going to be told and i think for me this is what separates this film from a lot of other superhero films 
Um, and I think this is why Marvel gets a lot of their stuff right, but there is a there is perhaps a, a, a dividing line here that makes this film, I, I think, better than a lot of the Marvel films, certainly more distinctive. Um, this is a film that the story that Sam Raimi wants to tell is about Peter Parker and about his personal dilemma the entire way through the film. It's not a film that is about the plot. It's not a film that's about, oh, this time he goes up against this villain, or, oh, this time he needs to do this at this point, needs to do that at that point, needs to do that at that point. For me, it's a film that the entire way through is saying, at the end of the first film, Peter came to the realisation that with great power must come great responsibility, and in the second film, we're going to watch him the whole way through struggling with that and going... Can I exist as Spider-Man and have anything I want in my Peter Parker life as well? And struggling and I mean, with that and and failing to grapple with it a lot of the time. And that is like that's the story engine for the character. Like yeah, if that, you're writing that, that, if you're writing a Spider-Man story, that beat has to be there. Like that is the crux of it. That's what separates him from every other superhero. And it's not but it's not just a beat here, is it? It's the entire film and it, it drives everything forward and Dr. Octopus is the villain and I think that might be what makes this film great is that yes it is focused on its character it also happened to stick a fantastic villain in there (laughs) at the same time that and weaves together the villain story and the personal dilemma story really fantastically and intricately throughout the film save maybe 10 20 minutes in the movie where it just kind of goes is dr octopus still out there i guess forget about it (laughs) um (laughs) but mostly i I think it all really works and i think there are there are maybe issues you could have with dr octopus but alfred molina is so good yeah um and yeah for me it just it just means that this is a film that never loses focus of its lead character, what his arc is throughout the movie, how that ripples thematically throughout all the other characters, and then the main characters around him, your Mary Janes, your Harry Osborns, your Aunt Mays, feel like they have their own distinct arcs as well that are very clear. And the film feels like it's very leisurely because of it as well, because it is because it is all focused on characters. You don't feel like you're jumping from one action set piece to another, or that you have to hit this beat in the plot, or that you have to introduce this other character over here or over there. There's not that many new characters introduced in this film. It's Doctor Octopus, really, and then the, the John, guys that John we met Jameson and John Jameson. <laughs> he, he and all his four lines. Yeah, um, I genuinely. I, now that I think about it, I genuinely can't even remember the actor's name who plays it. Daniel Gillies. Daniel Gillies. Yeah, and I'll tell you why he was he was a guest on a podcast um, that I was listening to a few weeks ago, <laughs> Harmontown. So uh, I I recognised him. Um, <laughs> oh, and he's 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 married to Rachel Lee Cook. I'm just on Wikipedia, um, but yeah, I mean the the character serves a, a plot function, but um, yeah, he he doesn't really have any impact i mean he doesn't he never turns into a wolf so uh, (laughs) oh wait is that a comics thing um yeah no he he later uh becomes a character called man wolf ah comics yeah (laughs) (laughs) is it does that relate in any way to his being an astronaut yes well it happens on the moon so yeah (laughs) (laughs) right okay (laughs) i'm not sure i want to know about that (laughs) he's he's like you think it's um, important 
he's he's um for a while he's She-Hulk's boyfriend in Dan Slott's very good She-Hulk run. Oh, I might have read some of him then. Yeah, yeah, you might you might have read it not realizing that he was John Jan- uh, John Jameson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Um we'll we'll definitely get to to that relationship. Um and the whole the whole Mary Jane getting married thing, um, but I think it's probably best to hit mm. that at the end because uh, that might be one of my issues with the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, what what do you guys think about that about that central dilemma? I mean, James, you said it is it is key to Spider Man, but do you agree with me that it's kind of it's there the whole way through? It's really what every scene is about. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah, that's. That's what transforms this from like a good Spider-Man story to like a, one of the definitive ones, I guess, because like it it takes that tension and makes it the you know the central theme of the movie, and that's like that's proof if ever you need it that <laughs> that Raimi understands Spider-Man because like I mean, he I'm... he takes this core aspect of the character and doesn't let go of it. Like that's that's a valid way to write a story, and and crucially as well, I think. Because you know, you can you can pay lip service to the idea that um, being Spider Man is difficult for Peter Parker and he has to make sacrifices in his life. <laughs> like using Spider Man too. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, Garbage wasn't, movies. That, I wasn't even making that point about that, but it was an entirely valid point. Um, but the point about this film is that at every stage where he makes a decision one way or the other it's it's entirely believable as to why he reached that point you know you, it is actually an arc that completely makes sense within the context of what's going on mm. um because it's a thing with spider-man of you know you you do look at what happens to him and and you can always be forgiven for thinking dude why do you even do this anymore <laughs> um and you know the fact that the film actually puts him in a position where it's actively harming his health and he's actively losing his powers as a result mm. then you don't like that period that period in the film where he's not Spider-Man. You don't you kind of sit there going, "Well, I do wish he was still Spider-Man because this is a Spider-Man film." But you but don't sit it. there you, you you don't sit there thinking he's completely abandoned his duties and people are dying as a result, you know. You, yeah. you sympathize with him for it, and equally when he does go back in, you 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 follow the thought process that's taken him back there and, you know, you you're cheering him on when he does. It's just it yeah, it really it convinces. And I think what's crucial to this as well is that that central dilemma of okay, yes, this is Spider-Man and it's the power of responsibility dichotomy, but it's also just such a relatable dilemma. Yes, like, we we as audience members aren't going, oh, should I go out and fight crime or should I focus on the rest of my life? But everyone has these dilemmas. It's a work-life balance question, right? You're, you're <laughs> going, well, you know, how much time should I invest in this thing? Can I afford to um, get invested in this thing when I've got all these other things going on? And am I really being fair to these people by making that decision or is that actively harming my relationship with that person and so i think it's it's a it's a big kind of key spider-man dilemma but it's also one that's relatable and i guess that is i mean that's something that's always been at the core of spider-man that he is the he is the relatable superhero Mm. yeah yeah (laughs) i i think i think you're right i think we've nailed it it's been, yeah, it's been nailed. <laughs> Should we just stop there? Do the pitch. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, um, now what what I did want to ask about, um, Seb, you mentioned it there, the losing his powers thing. I remember watching this as a kid and that was the that was the part of it I didn't get. I get the metaphor. Um, I'm not sure I quite understand in the logic of the movie what's happening there. Is it, is there any comics basis to the losing of the powers? Uh, I think when it happened in the comics in this story, I'm not sure if it was this story, but like the kind of famous time it happened, uh, it just turned out he had the flu. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think in this case... Like, it's just psychosomatic. Like, yeah. they, they have that scene where he says, like, it's all in your head, and it just is. Like, he right. just thinks it would be easier if he wasn't Spider-Man, so, you know, thinking makes it so, or whatever. It just seems like something that would be comic booky, I guess, which is always maybe what's thrown me a little bit, is that... I mean, he he, he, he has lost his powers at times. He, he lost his powers at the end. Their, their first attempt to end the clone saga was Peter loses his powers and that's why ultimately Ben Riley takes over, but it didn't last very long. <laughs> right. So here we we just literally have to have to put it down to he is kind of questioning everything and is under yeah, high it's, levels it's, of stress because of it and Yeah, and so it's psychosomatic. It's yeah. Yeah. Okay, that that I mean that is fine. I just remember watching it for the first time as a kid, going, "Why is he losing his powers? What's going on there?" <laughs> um, I guess it makes sense. <laughs> um, James, you mentioned this being kind of the the being a story where that happened. Am I right in thinking that this is loosely an adaptation of one particular issue of the Amazing Spider-Man comics? Yeah, it's kind of the the big moment from it is the where he says he I'm Spider-Man no more and he leaves his costume in a bin that is from it's like frame for frame yeah amazing yeah. amazing Spider-Man 50 I think Seb is it it's 50 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Spider-Man no more is that is yeah. that right yep yeah and is it just is it just that panel I mean what happens in that issue of the comic is there is there more parallels than just the I'm gonna I think I think the main parallel is the you know he tries to give it up but Keep, but kind of finds himself pulled back. He finds that he can't really give up. It's I have read it. It's been a while since. I think it's more a load of different things get to him. Um, I think it's kind of a lot of it's to do with like constant bashing by the bugle. Um, I can't remember if um, does something go wrong and does he actually fail at something and that kind of. I think he's starting to. I think he's just getting like attacked from all sides for you know. I think people are t- the public are kind of turning on him. Um, but James, I don't know if you remember it any better than me. I only I only read it like about <laughs> a year ago. I was working through the early Amazing Spider-Man's. So I should have. Uh... <laughs> but it's it's it, so it's plot wise, it's not the same events, but thematically, it's it's him reaching breaking point. But as soon as he gives it up, you know, he does realise that there has to be a Spider-Man, and that you know. Um, and he, it does have a, th- a thing of he. I think he spends a lot of time be- suddenly being able to be happy and and spending time with. I mean, I think this is around the college years, so this would be with like Gwen and Harry. Um, you it's know, when he's suddenly he's not like missing events and stuff anymore, and he's actually getting to hang out with people and stuff. It's when uh, he was living with Harry. Yeah, and it's a kingpin it's- story as well, and I can remember that much. 
Yeah. So, you know, you get that thing of, oh, wow, this is the life he could have if he wasn't Spider-Man. But equally, if he wasn't Spider-Man, he would ultimately end up feeling massively guilty about the fact that he's not (laughs) Spider-Man. It's impressive that then that this film is able to turn it into a whole... You know, that it it Mm. has that one key idea and is able to tell... Like I said, what I feel is kind of like a very leisurely paced superhero movie that you can that you have time to just constantly stick two characters in a room and have them talk to each other and have that scene mean something for both characters to have it mean something thematically for this central dilemma that is driving the film forward um and and to do that and to stretch that over the course of a two-hour film and never feel... I mean, when Doctor Octopus isn't there, I'm never going, oh, I really want to get back to the villain stuff. Um, this this dilemma on its own could have, I, I feel, could have, you know, sustained a story. Probably not a 200 million blockbuster movie. You're probably, <laughs> you've got to throw your villain in there. But it feels strong enough. It feels strong enough to get through there. And I'm sure if we kind of like, if we were doing this as like a DVD commentary and were hitting this film scene for scene for scene, you would be able to, you know, pick each scene apart and say, yes, this is how this relates back to that central question, and this is how, this is how it is affecting Peter at this given time, and this is how his decision is then affecting the character that he's talking to, and that. You know, I mean, because we do, you kind of, like you said about Aunt May, you kind of get to the end of the film and you kind of know that she knows. Um, Mm. But her arc is kind of taking place off screen, just being kind of slowly pushed forward by her interactions with Peter. Same with Mary Jane, same with Harry. Um, And I just think it's a really impressive feat of blockbuster storytelling. I'm not sure, I couldn't... I, I mean, the Marvel films tend to focus more on the hero and we do have... I think, you know, we have a film like Iron Man 3, which is kind of pushed forward by Tony grappling with his PTSD or something like that, or The Winter Soldier, which is pushed forward by Captain America questioning his role in the 21st century in with government and warfare. Um, but this, I mean, this feels a lot more personal and also that that is that it is more of the focus here that the Doctor Octopus hit stuff is there to complement it whereas in Winter Soldier I feel that the the Captain America arc is there to complement the big shield conspiracy do you know what I mean that it feels mm-hmm. like that the, just the balance is slightly more weighted on character here than it is on than it is in I mean any other really good superhero movie yeah, that I well, can think of. What I guess what you're what you're calling like the character stuff in this is like what the comics would call like the soap opera stuff. Which is that yeah. it's not about the fights, it's about Peter and his supporting cast. And like mm. that's what this film film does that other ones don't, is that it like it's all it's got all the characters in there, but it's it's still all about Peter. And I mean, even, I mean, most of the fight scenes are as well. And I mean, the the, the sequences, like the big action sequences, maybe not just fight sequences, but the big action sequences that I can think of. The first one is obviously him swinging through New York, delivering the pizza. 
Um, that is all about whether <laughs> Peter can balance the Spider-Man and uh, and you know his his own life, his job basically. Um, the second one is him trying to get to Mary Jane's play and being distracted by the uh, distracted by the the uh, are they bank robbers? Bank robbers, yeah. Yeah, um, and then we kind of get the the final fight. Obviously, the thing that drives Peter the most is that Mary Jane's been ki- kidnapped. Now, obviously, that is a clear case of damseling, but at the very least, it is it is an emotional beat for Peter because ultimately, when you're talking about those t- the two things that you're trying to pal- balance, Mary Jane is kind of key to all of that. She is she is really what's driving his dilemma more than anything. Um, and uh, and the other one is I guess the fight with Doctor Octopus in which Aunt May is damseled. So we so we get that thrown in there. And I guess <laughs> Sam Raimi is basically in every single action sequence going, well, how does this relate back? And you know we'll we'll talk for this um, relentlessly. But any time a superhero movie is focused on character and plot when it's doing its action sequences rather than just pausing for an action sequence. Mm. That's that's what makes good superhero movies. But that's the that's like the genre, isn't it? That's the thing a lot of movie superhero movies especially seem to miss is that like the action sequence has to say something as well. Like it shouldn't just be a fight. Like it's yeah, the it's, it's the classic <laughs> Buffy thing of every fight in Buffy isn't about punching, like it's Buffy fighting something else. And that's one of the things Whedon did so well was like take that from the superhero genre and put it on TV. And I think Amazing Spider-Man Spider-Man 2 is one film that that manages to do that in a like consistent manner. I mean Freudian slip there when you said sorry, sorry <laughs> Freudian slip when you said Amazing Spider-Man 2, but actually my favorite action sequence between both Amazing Spider-Man movies is the one that opens up the second movie where he is kind of he is caught between trying to make it to his graduation ceremony on time and <coughs> and meet Gwen there, um, and you know it's, it's fighting the rhino, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah that, rhino. Uh, rhino comes at the end. Does he not come up both? No, but he's there at the start as well. Oh, he's he's driving the truck at the start. Oh, he doesn't okay, have the rhino right. suit, yeah. but he's yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I mean it, it, the thing about it, you know, the fights being a metaphor even works in this film to the extent of. If you look at the particular type of villain that he's fighting, he's fighting Dr. Octopus. Dr. Octopus's defining thing is that he has these four mechanical arms. So in every sequence where Spider-Man is fighting him, he's not just fighting a guy. He's actually having to deal with stuff coming at him from all directions, yeah. whether it's at the bank scene or whether it's on the train in all of, or you know when he's trying to stop the experiment and stuff. In all of these scenes, he's trying to do about 10 different things at once because of the nature of the villain and his powers. And that is a complete metaphor for the life that he lives as Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and Dr. Octopus is um, chosen, I would imagine, for a very specific reason, but also altered from his comic book form for very specific reasons for this movie. Um, I mean, he is and he isn't. He's There are elements of him that... There's one big element of Dr. Octopus that isn't really in this version, which is the superiority complex. I, um, I think it's there. Um, and but we'll, I mean, uh, we'll get to this when we talk, yeah, we, it's we there. talk about the inhibitor chip. It's not. It's, it's there, but it's not. I don't think it's played on as much as it should have been. So obviously, yeah, I, I think, know a little bit more about Doctor Octopus than I do other 
Spider-Man villains because you recommended me the Master Planner saga on mm. uh, the previous <laughs> podcast, and also I've read all of Superior Spider-Man, so I've got a little a little bit of a you know idea of who this character is, and I feel yeah I feel there is there's kind of like there is an echo of the superior or bleh, of the superiority complex, but it doesn't. It doesn't dominate the character. Well, in the they they have the age. moment, don't they, where Peter says this won't work, and he says, "Of course it will," and then it doesn't. Mm. Like that, that is a <laughs> That's classic Doctor Octopus all the yeah, way through. That is a classic Doctor Octopus thing. Like, I mean, yeah. it's also it's a Doctor Doom thing as well. Like, yeah. he thinks he can do it. Uh, Reed Richard says he can't, and then obviously he doesn't because that's his flaw. Is like he's vain, but but yeah, it's not like the if you're doing a sort of classic down the middle Doctor Octopus story, his overconfidence should be his undoing, whereas that's not how how this falls. Well, his like, overconfidence kind of is, is yeah. his creation here. His creation, so, yeah. It's not. So, it's not how Peter defeats him though. No, so I mean, so and I guess the difference is, so the the thing we'll discuss is this inhibitor chip when he puts on the, when he puts on the mechanical arms. So he puts on the mechanical arms, and in the, hey, don't worry because you see this little flimsy piece of plastic <laughs> at the top of my neck. This is an inhibitor chip that stops that, the um, AI in the arms from taking over my brain. That that moment where a reporter says to him, "If you're if you're AI is as advanced as you say it is, <laughs> that is the one moment in this film that is just straight out of Batman and Robin." Yeah, they, like, <laughs> I would really like it. I would really like it if that scene just continued rather than, "Oh, don't worry, I've got the chip." It was just like, "You don't understand what the hell you're talking about, do you?" <laughs> like that's the real answer there. Yeah. Um. I mean, but yeah, it's a bit so like, don't worry, thanks to this plot device on the back of my neck yeah. that the camera is going to zoom in on, everything will be but fine. But like, it's not, it's not the bad two science. Two minutes later, it's smashed. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the bad science that bothers me. It's like, it's the thematics of, <clears throat> like, one of the other big changes is that Dr. Octopus has a wife in this. And he's talking about how important it is to balance, like, your home life and your work. And then his wife dies and he goes full in on the work and that sends him crazy. But the way they play it is, well, that's not what sends him crazy. Like, his obsession doesn't. It's this chip. And so it actively takes away, like, the thematics of the character to have it in there. I think I think the reason that they do that is that they've decided that this Octavius is going to be a, a straight down the line good guy. Well, yeah, they want him sympathetic, don't they? So yeah. they they have to have something taking the culpability away from him. And but, I, I I don't mind that because I mean, I just don't think because they need it. I, I, th- I like I think a, you still I like a Doctor Octopus that's a bit more complex and can be a good guy anyway. But also, I think Melina sells that version of the character so well. Oh yeah, absolutely. That I don't mind that it's that they've gone that way with it. I do agree with you, James, though that it kind of would be more interesting if he had this underlying obsession that was allowed to take over and it wasn't just he's got this mechanical arms that have a mind of their own and they've taken control of him because of the inhibitor chip. <laughs> you know? I I just think it. Yeah, it doesn't need it. I think you could have it be a little bit more complex than that. First of all, remove the inhibitor chip itself. It's done. Just say, oh, there is some AI to that. And the reporter go, well, what if the if the AI is as strong as you think it is? No, no, that would never happen. My brain is so far superior to I mean, actually, yeah, you could just... Yeah. 
mm-hmm. would be a line of dialogue that would be so completely in character for yes. Doctor Octopus as well and would get that sense of superiority. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it would it would chime with the end of the movie where he does overcome them. Where he does overcome it. But yes. it just I, I like the idea that it wouldn't even occur to him that the mm. arms could take control because as far as he's concerned, he will always be in control yeah. of them because he created them brilliantly. <laughs> and I so think, I think you can still have... You can still have the 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 wife stuff, and you can still have the 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 family stuff because, again, thematically, that is what Peter is going to be grappling with the rest of the movie. Can I have both of these things? Well, I just watched this guy try and focus too hard on this side of his life and lost everything on the other side of it, and ultimately, that's my biggest fear: is hurting the people that I love. So, I think all of that works really well. I just I I think you could do a thing where the hubris is what causes the accident at the start, which it is. Uh, that is what happens here. Except then there is this kind of muddying of the waters with oh, uh, have the mechanical arms taken over? And I think Molina plays it well in that he keeps he keeps that muddiness of well, oh, it could be me and it could be the arms. And I think it just basically gives them a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card in that you can say some of the more horrendous stuff was the arms. Um, But I I just don't think you need it. I think you could have a character who is driven by the grief and knowledge that he destroyed everything in his life because he was so overconfident. And rather than acknowledging that and grappling with it, he instead doubles down on, on that overconfidence that superior that superiority that hubris and decides to blame everyone else because how could it possibly have been him at fault um only for him to see when he's on the brink of making the same mistake at the end again then i think you can still hit that beat i just don't think you need the inhibitorship and i don't think you particularly need the arms taking over Uh, full stop I think I think you can do a villain. I mean, but I mean, what you said is absolutely right. Seb is that Melina plays this version of the character so well that it's very very easily forgiven and very easily forgotten. I don't spend the train sequence going, "Is it the arms? Is it him? What about the inhibitor chip?" I just go, "Wow, Melina is great." Well, what what you've basically got is you've got the starting point of taking one of the absolute best villains in like all of comics. Like I've said this before, but I think as far as I'm concerned, it's it's Doctor Octopus and Lex Luthor are the are the big two for me, and, and Doctor Octopus is easily the best Spider-Man villain. So you're taking a great character anyway both in the fact that he's an interesting character and a great concept and a great visual and a great foil for Spider-Man because he's you know he's got eight limbs um <laughs> you're putting you're having him played by Alfred Molina who is just yeah just completely nails and sells every aspect of that character and you've got a combination you've got the right combination of effects so that even when you might have some moments where they're doing it cg so it maybe looks a little bit ropey because it's 2004 cg so much of the octopus stuff is done with practical effects and that makes such a difference and so for most of the time that he's on screen 
the stuff with him and the arms is totally convincing. So I think the only bit that doesn't is that first shot when it from the back when he first put the arms on and it's really obviously CG and they're extending out and it doesn't look great. But anytime you've got a close-up of one of those arms whizzing around him and his head or around Spider-Man, just the execution of how they've done Octopus just works great. So all of those factors together, and I find it hard to think of a better on-screen villain in any superhero movie. It's just, you know, just fantastic. <laughs> I think the visuals of... I mean, you could you could have picked Doctor Octopus purely for how it looks when he fights Spider-Man. I mean, we've seen Spider-Man fight lots of different characters over the course of, well, six movies, if you include Civil War. And just visually seeing him go up against this guy with the eight arms and the kind of the spidery movements i mean i think i love the sequence where they're fighting on the wall when aunt may has been dropped mm. you've got spider-man like crawling, crawling up, up yeah. the wall yeah. and and kind of uh, doc ock is crawling up kind of with his back to the wall because of his arms and mm. his arms are like flowing like tentacles and he, they both have this really liquid motion and it just, yeah, visually, it just, those two characters fighting, it, it just works every single time. And you're right about the kind of the... the kind One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kind of metaphors of the, you know, fighting things on all these different fronts with the arms coming in. Um, I just, yeah, you could just purely on a visual, um, on a visual level, these two characters are ideally suited to fight in live action. Um, and then you had the fact that, I mean, I don't, I actually think the CG, you're right, the, the, the fact that it's a mix of uh, practical effects and CG is great. But for me, the CG isn't that shonky. And in fact, you're, I mean, you talked about when it kind of goes in the back and you see them extending. But for me, at that point, I'm still kind of grimacing at the horror of seeing the needles dig their way into his spine <laughs> which is Sam Raimi kind of flexing his horror muscles and again a scene where you could go oh is the CG of the arms a bit 
unconvincing here is when Doc Ock is laid unconscious on the on the hospital gurney in the arms. Oh, that attacking scene, people. man, that, that scene. <laughs> that is horrifying. Yeah, the 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 um the doctor with her kind of nails digging into the ground as she's dragged backwards. That, that is, is Sam that is Raimi most, going. Yeah, yeah. Re- remember why I'm famous? Because <laughs> I can do <laughs> I this really I, well. I watched the commentary like years and years ago, and I seem to remember him saying that was the first thing he recorded as like a piece of test footage for. Can we make it work? Mm. Answer I, yes, I'm, and I'm, it can I'm, be horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of torn on that scene because, like, it's brilliant. It is it is a really really brilliant piece of filmmaking and it's you know as someone who's not into horror i can look at that and go oh okay that's why sam raimi was so highly regarded as a director of horror you know if that's the kind of stuff he was doing with evil dead and i know he specifically references it with the chainsaw and stuff (laughs) you know it's just so like horrific and so well done and it's like and actually in a way it's kind of almost more unsettling because the fact that because it's in this movie there's no blood and gore and actually that almost makes it a little bit more horrible um and also the fact that there's no music there's no incidental score during that scene and that really so it's just sound effects and that gives it a really chilling sense as well so in all of those senses i think it's a it's a just a really great piece of filmmaking I'm not sure it has any place in this movie because tonally I don't think it fits anything else the movie is doing and I think it's if I look at it from the perspective of a kid going to see this who loved the first film and is going to see the second Spider-Man film and almost everything else that this film hits will have you know hit in the same way that scene just feels so out of place and I wish it didn't because I I mean I'm not saying I don't think it should be there because I'm glad it's in there it's a great scene but there's nothing else in the rest of the film like it even in terms of how it's shot the camera angles and the style of it none of the rest of the film is like that I just think it arrives at just the right moment in the film and the fact that it is still a kind of comatose um, you know Otto Octavius on the gurney and then it is kind of the arms taking control for themselves. Um, and it has come after that big horrific scene where the kind of the danger level is at its peak for the movie. And I, I just think, I think it's judged well as to where he slots it into the film. And I, I think it's, I think it's great in establishing a level of threat that you can then later in the film feel genuine peril for characters like Mary Jane and Aunt May and for the passengers on the train. And you see you see that the character is willing to go to those lengths. Um, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It is unlike anything else in the movie. But I think it, it strikes a really... It, it yeah it just it just establishes him as a threat for a character that so far you're supposed to have liked and you're supposed to have mm, identified he's a with a nice scientist yes, guy yeah. who could almost be a father figure mentor to um to peter to suddenly going oh okay right i know what the stakes are now and then that's that's fascinating to then go from that into should I be Spider-Man anymore? And you're going, <laughs> yes, because that guy. <laughs> and he disappears for 20 minutes in the middle of the movie and you're like, where is Dr. Octopus? It's convenient that he's kind of sitting and plotting in, in this 20 minutes, I guess, rather than terrorising the streets of New York when Peter is uh, not suited up. So I think like all that stuff about Dr. Octopus is good and like they establish him as a threat and 
you know, you you get the sense that he is actually going to be a problem. Like, I kind of wish they hadn't married that with he is a surrogate father for Peter by doing the thing like, oh, he really respects him and he looks up to him and he's giving him advice and stuff like it bothers me when villains get overly personal. Like some of my favorite parts of this film are just Spider-Man like, you know, saving, saving people from danger, like webbing up bank villains because that's what he does. Like, I don't think you have to go necessarily all in on now it's personal because the heroes should be doing things you know, they should be saving people anyway. And do you do you think it? <sighs> it I'm comes not a, well, sure it how comes across a bit. It is because it's definitely not personal for <clears throat> Doc Ock because he doesn't know it's Peter until right at the end. Yeah, like so. They... The personal the personal aspect has to be Peter seeing him as some kind of well, no, they do. Mentor. And I think it's more that he sees him as. He saw him as a potential mentor, a potential father figure kind of character. But then actually what he is, is he is, he's a warning. He's a, here's what you could be if you go, if you do things badly. Here is, here is the prime example of getting the balance wrong. Here is the man who lost everyone he loved. And so for me, it doesn't it doesn't feel personal bet- between the two, but it feels like that Peter has a mirror, a kind of a kind of funhouse mirror to look into. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they they don't really establish that relationship. Like, you don't see Peter making that connection. Like, the audience is left to make that connection, and I think they could have done that without the characters meeting out of costume. Like, they, they have a sort of pseudo-relationship between Harry and Octavius. Mm. And I think that would have been enough to keep him in the sort of circle. So um, so what you're saying is basically that Peter could be observing all of that without having to have sat down for dinner with him and met his wife and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, ju- I just think, like, yeah, the, I relation- the relationship between Octavius and Spider-Man should be purely hero-villain. Like... Octavius having a relationship with Peter Parker makes it seem overly convenient to me. Like it's a yeah, very it's minor, it's a very minor nitpick. Like, and I think it probably in this film even it it works. But in my perfect version of this film, that's you know the, that's a <laughs> difference that I would make. Seb, so is there anything else from the comics version of Doctor Octopus? I mean, you mentioned the superiority. James has just said that, obviously. But given that you think he is the greatest. You know, Marvel villain, I, I guess, maybe greatest full stop comic book villain. Is there anything else that from the comics that you wanted here, or anything that they didn't play up enough? Um, I mean, a lot of what I like about Doctor Octopus, and again, not wanted to spoil it, but we'll talk about this when we get into the recommendations, is to do with him having had that long term relationship with spider-man like i it's not necessarily that in his first couple of appearances dr octopus is the best villain it's more that after a certain period of time 
he becomes like you know i think he's far more the arch enemy than um norman osborne is um and i you know i think he works better as an arch enemy and so a lot of what i really like about octavius is when he shows up and you have that history and as i say this will tie into something that i'm going to talk about when i recommend you something to read it's one of the reasons that superior works so well superior spider-man would not work as well with any other villain um and it's you know it's even little things like um uh, the fact that Dr. Octopus was once engaged to Aunt May in some of the 60s <laughs> comics. Wow. Uh, genuinely, yeah. So maybe they could have worked that in. That's a shame that they didn't. So by its nature, you can't have a lot of what I think makes Doc Ock great because you're introducing the character. And I think that's kind of why I don't have as much of a problem as James does of, of inst- instead what you're doing is you're substituting in the stuff with them knowing each other outside of being Spider-Man and and Doctor Octopus, um, so that when, so that further down the line later in the film you've got that to draw on instead of um, you've been a thorn in my side for so many years, mm. you know. Um, so that's probably the main thing that I think is lacking. But I I think they they get around it reasonably well like i you know over the course of this one film i think their relationship has a decent amount of depth and a decent amount of history to it given the limited scope of time in which you can do that yeah um what are your thoughts on the doc ock costume you said i think i think we all agree that the arms work incredibly well for for especially for 2004 um what about the rest of it or is it is how comics accurate is it uh, it's not really the comics version. Like the comics version has been through several different sort of. Yeah, he was he was originally settings. just in like a a rubbishy boiler suit. I think in the nineties he wore a white suit <clears throat> quite a lot. Yeah. Um, in the cartoon series, this... he had that green and yellow like armor stuff. <laughs> yeah, which I think was in the comics for a bit as well. Yeah. I think because I think in some ways this version also has elements of the ultimate version in it. And I can't remember if he ends up going round in a long coat in Ultimate after a while. I mean, it's one of those ones where I wouldn't call it comics accurate, but equally, it's a visual that that works for the character and works for this version of the character. It's a sensible thing for a character in his position and of his look to, <laughs> to do, I think. So, it's if if I became Doctor Octopus, I'd probably wear a big long trench coat like that. Put it that way. I guess as well the defining aspect for him is the arms, so it probably doesn't matter what the rest is doing, as long as you yeah. as long as you've got those arms right. Um, Pretty and much, I guess we yeah. should we should talk about the kind of the uh, for me the iconic scene of this movie, and I think it might divide people. I don't know whether it's going to divide us, but the the whole sequence on the train the fight the then stopping the train and then the interaction with the new yorkers on the train for me that is just 10 15 minutes of a spider-man movie that i could watch again and again and again like ev- mm-hmm. everything works for me it has it has the right levels of the kind of cheesiness but also threat and yeah Tobey Maguire pulls some silly faces when he's trying to hold the train back but apart from that I can't <laughs> find any fault in that sequence I was going to say you could you could maybe complain that it's a bit mawkish but I mean if you if you don't accept a bit of mork then you shouldn't really be watching superhero movies yeah 
I think I think maybe the only thing I don't like is the delivery of the kid who goes, "We found this," or whatever it is he says is a is a bit rubbish. Uh, but otherwise um yeah it's great and and you know the, i thought what i really like is the uh if you want to get spider-man you've got to go through me and me and yes. me okay and yeah then okay. Just them all out the way <laughs> <laughs> i think as well the fact that this movie came out in 2004 in set in new york um it just that i mean that it's a me you can you can get away with all the mawkishness you need at that point obviously spider-man was released the first spider-man film was kind of released in the wake of 9-11 and then um this was kind of the the most identifiable new york hero fighting a guy on a subway train in new york yeah just dial up the cheese it's actually interesting like this this movie considering how many marvel properties i directly associated with new york like this one does it better than any of marvel studios's offerings and i think that's because marvel studios made a conscious effort to save new york for avengers like they just they don't have the sort of feeling of a superhero operating in new york even like i guess daredevil's tv series does to an extent like that still the, feels that, this still feels the one that comes closest, more new york but, than anything else Oh yeah, despite de- well, the fact yeah, that it's, that it's got a it's got a train that isn't a train that exists in New York. Well, again, a cargo train. I read the I read the um, read the when I watched the commentary, I remember them saying like they they wanted to do like a kind of ultimate, not ultimate as in comics, like an an ultimate kind of iconic version of New York, which is why the elevated trains are still running. Because mm-hmm. like that, you know, historically New York had elevated railroads or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And so that's why they kept them in the movie for this, even though it's not like it, it was such a New York thing that they included it anyway, even though it wasn't accurate. And the visual of the train getting to the end of the tracks and nearly falling over and stopping it just in time. It's so kind yeah. of, you know, it's but like just just all of it, like the like starting even with with Peter delivering pizzas, like it just it's New York from the word go. And it works so well for that reason. Like it it makes me actively excited for the next Spider-Man film where they will presumably be going back to New York. Well, I think they'll be spending a lot of that film in Queens. I mean, we spoke <laughs> about this, didn't we, in the first film, that Spider-Man is fighting uh, Green Goblin at the end on the bridge that separates Manhattan from where he grew up. You know, like, it's this... <laughs> uh, it, the, the film is... Uh, the, these films, I think, got New York very, very right. And it's nice... It's nice to see them have that sense of place. And this might be me coming off the back of this week watching the new Ghostbusters film that was filmed in Boston, going, <laughs> why? Like, if you're going to set it in New York... Like, Ghostbusters, one of the most New York-y movies ever. <laughs> I'm getting off the point here. But for me, that was something <laughs> that was in my mind, especially this week, going, yeah, this film feels like it's just it's just getting it right. I hope it was filmed in New York now, after I've said... After I've criticised Ghostbusters for it. <laughs> apart, apart from the train fight, the location stuff was New York, and then all the stuff on sets was LA. Oh, the, yeah. Sets, yeah, sets the we can be okay with. I think, <laughs> I think we can forgive anyone the sets. Um, I mean, and I guess in, in terms of just following through on the, the kind of the, the main Doc Ock, Spidey fights action arc of the movie... Um, for me, the final showdown is a little bit of an anticlimax. Um, in fact, and, and this this might be what 
ultimately like holds it back slightly for me is that the kind of the the final big action sequence isn't great i don't think it's as good as the final action sequence in the first film and I, I, I find it hard to remember specific visuals from it the way that I can remember from, and even though I just watched it again the other day. Um, you know, the the train and the bank have got iconic shots that mm. this one, apart from Spider-Man pulling out the plugs, I don't really remember much else about the visuals of it. And it just seems kind of rushed. Doc Ock's now, you know, he's got he's set off the big thing, the big MacGuffin-y thing that's going to... Uh, which it I guess you can just defeat by dropping it into water. Maybe shouldn't it's, have it's tried a to build bit, it right next like, to the water. It's like they've spent all of this time on this very character-driven story and the story of Peter, um, you know, not being Spider-Man and then learning to become Spider-Man again and learning what that really means. They've spent all of that time on that, and then they they do the train sequence, which is their amazing big climactic action sequence. And then they get to a point where they're like, oh, yeah, crap, we've got to wind up the plot, haven't we? Mm. And it's just, you know, the actual Ox machine plot is so, like, it's just it's just not the plot of the movie. It, it's just there. It's just in the background. And it's just something that has to be wrapped up at the end. And, you know, as far as stuff that they're wrapping up at the end goes, I'm I'm far more interested in the, the next step of the Harry plot than I am the the, Oct- the Octavius plot. Yeah, that well, that, point. that was the thing I was going to ask you about next, how you feel about the way it weaves Harry into this, that Harry, the whole way through this movie, is kind of lashing out at Peter because he knows Peter has a relationship with Spider-Man and believes that Spider-Man killed his father. And Harry kind of goes he, f- first step to villainy when he mm. uh, collaborates with Doc Ock and says, "Look, bring me Spider-Man, and I'll give you this thing." So completely, complete lack of regard for everyone else in the city, purely to I gain think, this I act think, of revenge. And I think to be fair, he doesn't really realise the scope of what's going to happen though, because when Peter comes to him, mm. firstly he's like dude's going to kill Mary Jane and Harry's like oh yeah crap hadn't really thought of that and then he's like oh yeah and he's going to wipe out the city and I think Harry's reaction is I don't think Harry is is intends to be complicit in that at that point I don't think mm. he thinks that Ox plan will actually I think it's probably because he's bombed out of his skull at that point anyway but <laughs> what James um, Franco or Harry <laughs> a little of column A a little of column B um, I'm I'm a I can't remember how much we talked about this in the first film, but I'm a really big fan of Harry and the Harry arc yes. throughout these three films. Love it. Like he's the he's the best thing about the third film by far. Yeah. Um Agreed. and I think it helps that I again, you know, I'm not as big a fan of Norman Osborne, but I do like the Peter and Harry relationship in the comics and I like when Harry becomes the Green Goblin. You know, he is he's got a similar conflicted thing to Peter, only his conflict is Peter is my best friend and actually deep down I'm not a bad guy, but my dad was completely mental and has essentially brainwashed me into following his path and hating Peter, plus I'm taking these drugs that make me powerful and they are messing with my brain. Mm. And he's also, you know, been a regular drug addict in the past anyway. So it's like 
when that relationship culminates, which happens in a particular um, issue of Spectacular Spider-Man in the early 90s, which is fantastic, there's this one issue by James DeMattis that just gets to the, the root of their relationship and that conflict. And I think these films play that really well. And yeah, I mean, you know, throughout this, you've just got Harry as this lingering, brooding background presence, but you can see him heading towards what he'll go on and do in the third film and you know disappointing execution of the costume and stuff notwithstanding um it's the path that he takes where you think he's going to be an out and out villain and and then he doesn't sorry spoilers for the third film but um works really well and you can see from this film how he gets there and how he's got the two things of peter and norman he's caught between the two of them i also really love that this film has what would if, it, if this film had only been made like three or four years later, it would be a post-credit sequence, but it's not. So the concept of post-credit sequence wasn't a thing. <laughs> so when you have the bit with, with Harry discovering the lab, yes. that would absolutely be the mid-credit sequence yeah. <laughs> if this film was made a few years later. But as it is, it's just it's dropped in there in the narrative. Uh, and it's a nice little scene. It's nice yeah, to get the... To get Willem Dafoe back and and all of that, it's. Uh, but I think you know Franco hams up so much throughout these films, but I think he's always he's playing the son of Willem Dafoe of in the first he's film. Doing. <laughs> well, yeah. That's fine. Um, that hamming up is absolutely appropriate for a guy who is going to emulate that particular father. Um, yeah, I I love the Harry arc in this film. I love that it 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 takes so little because basically you see a character who. You see the shift in him from the end of the first film to the start of this one, that he has found some professional success. He is I trying to emulate how, his father. How douchey rich guy he yes. is. All his Nobel Prize stuff. He's just, he's like, you know, he's a young man, like, out, Nouveau kind of riche out of his step. basically. Yeah, it just works so well. But Franco completely sells that. He, he gets the character spot on that he... He is capable, and he is, um, and you know, he is, he is, in a way, capable of emulating his father, the the better aspects of his father. But is also, you know, he's still flawed, and he's still going to make mistakes, and he is still. I mean, his his motives aren't pure, which makes him a great character as a kind of a foil for the will he won't he become a villain. Um, but it, it, it kind of all plays out in the background without ever having to spend too much time with Harry. It's kind of what I said, that all of the scenes feel like they're about Peter, but they have ripple effects on the other characters. So Harry is never really front and centre in any scenes. It's always Peter and Peter reacting to Harry. But Harry has this arc throughout the film, and you buy that he has been driven to this point where that all he cares about is killing Spider-Man because he killed his dad. Um, it pays off the start of the, the end of the last film. It sets up the next film and what the next film really should have been more focused on than it ultimately was. Um, and I love the scene where Peter's body is delivered to Harry. I mean, James and I on the last podcast were talking um, Shakespeare quite a lot. We're in, not in any particular detail because, you know, <laughs> we're comic book nerds, not Shakespeare experts. But there is something about that scene that feels so Shakespearean to me and, and so over the top and hammy where the, the, the body is laid strewn and he gets his father's dagger off the table and he unsheaths it and he's mm. it's a shadowy room and he rips off the mask and literally staggers backwards in surprise and then Peter gets up and suddenly rips off all the binding and it's 
it's a wonderful, wonderful scene where everything is so over the top, um, but it works for that relationship that feels like it has been painted in these... The, the relationship and the beats of the betrayal have been painted in very broad strokes, but the characters haven't been. So it's... Uh, so it works. Um, and you... Yeah, you, you, you buy that Harry has been driven to the point where he wants Spider-Man's body, but also that, yes, in that moment, he completely understands, I need to let Peter go. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never know what to do when I go off on those rants and then I stop. <laughs> so. Well, no, because yeah, just, I just I I agree. I, yeah, <laughs> you don't really need us at all. <laughs> <laughs> you just need us to throw in a few issue numbers every so often. And, uh, <laughs> um, but but I mean, I guess straight after that we do. So we'll return to that final Doc Ock sequence, and aside from the big. Aside from the big kind of MacGuffin of it all, what do you guys think about the about the the you know kind of the change of heart of Otto Octavius of deciding to uh, deciding to make that sacrifice and saying that he doesn't want to die as he doesn't want to go out as a villain. I mean, I I would imagine that any nuclear physicist would know that you can't like put out the sun by dunking it in water <laughs> well it, well that's absurd yes <laughs> <laughs> but on a but on an emotional level and on a on a way to wrap up doc ock's story does it does it make sense to you and does it satisfy that he has that change of heart i mean do, do you approach okay. it any differently as a comic book fan of the per- character personally i don't like the idea of like every villain has to die at the end of the movie. Yes. Like my, even if you don't plan to bring them back, I think it serves the character better to have them out there and villainous. And if this film had ended with him going like, uh, you know, you haven't seen the last of me, <laughs> even if we had, I would have preferred it just because I think mm. it's, it's too much of a waste to have that villain once and not bring him back. Like, you know. No, but I mean, you're you're right. It's not about the bringing him back. That when the Dark Knight ends and the Joker isn't killed, that that there's no way that the Joker should have died at the end of that movie, even though they knew when they delivered that final edit that yeah, Heath Ledger's Joker was not coming back. But the fact that he's out there and the fact that he didn't die because he didn't need to die in the story. And you're right, it is an annoying... I mean, it's so annoying in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well that, you know, you've got this it's big like, universe uh, and you keep killing off your villains. But it's not... They they all do it. The The 90s Batman films did it. Yeah. All of the Raimi Spider-Man films do it. Like, how many of the villains are left alive of across all three films after the end of Spider-Man 3? Without Spider-Man um, actually killing any of them. Yeah, which at least is something. Um, but it's... Yeah, it's... It, it's way too common a trope in these films and I think it's because a lot of the time these films don't and I think maybe hopefully the Marvel films will start to get to grips with this given that they've done enough of them but they don't um, take stock of their their heritage as a serial narrative like you know the reason why comic book death is a thing 
is because comics are long-form serial stories, and if you keep killing off your villains and never bringing them back, you're going to run out of villains. The movies, I think, even when they're sequels and even when they're part of a series, they tend to view themselves as a self-contained movie, and you know, it, and it is quite a common thing in action movies that you know the villain will get killed at the end rather than put in jail or whatever. But they just they never seem in isolation to recognise that. In the world that they're setting up, the the villains there should be more villains kicking around than there actually are. Mm. Um, I think maybe only the X Men films do. A, you know, you look at the characters that have endured throughout the X Men films. Um, they're one of the ones that I think have slightly embraced the comic bookiness a bit more. And you know, like Magneto's always been around in those. So. <laughs> I think yeah. hopefully we are approaching a point where that is going to be less the case. Obviously, the two big superhero <clears throat> movies of this summer in terms of um, big shared universes decided to keep their um, villains around. So maybe that is a maybe that is a thing we can look forward to more in the shared universe model. But I mean, uh, here, I think it's just... I, I think it comes back to me not being entirely comfortable with, oh, it's the AI of the arms that's evil, not the bloke. And I think it should be, I think it should be a little bit more of both. And I like them, like I say, I liked the kind of murkiness of that, you know, is it the arms? Is it him? Uh, I mean, he, you know, it was his hubris that led him to this point. He He's grief ridden because of his decision, what he did. I don't want it to be as simple as, oh, I see the error of my ways. I am taking control of this situation and now I'm going to do something good. Um, I would almost kind of like it if you could find a an, a way around that you convince Otto he needs to help for his own good because he's going to die otherwise or something like that. Because So you can kind of play him as a hero at the end. You can see a glimmer of the man he was but also acknowledge that this guy is a guy who has turned to villainy and he's not turning back. There's kind of no other way you can do it under the circumstances that they wrote the film. Like, the fact that they've got the stuff with the inhibitor chips and the the AI in their arms and stuff. Damn inhibitor chip. That is that is honestly this film's biggest flaw. Everything wrong with this it's film. Films, it's the film's inhibitor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and on that bombshell... No, because we need to talk about the final sequence, which is Mary Jane. She's going to get married, you guys. She's going to get happily ever after with <laughs> is that, she though? that <laughs> I mean, bloke is she... off of the CW. Um, They're planning a wedding, but you see more of the wedding planning than the than the romance that's going into it. Yeah, well, so they, they don't do the legwork there, but also I just think for the sake of getting the visual of Mary Jane turning up in Peter's apartment in the white dress, I could have done without in my head going wait so she's found out it was Peter she's kind of known that she's been in love with him the whole time anyway and she kind of felt like this affection for Spider-Man she's made the connection that they're both the same person there can't be any doubt in her mind for, at this point now if that wedding is the next day I can kind of excuse <laughs> it but I still don't think you should have put on the dress and maybe no. you should have had a word with him maybe an hour or two after the saving um, and it just makes me feel really bad for him because he's just got such a pathetic, Poor sad, old. sad face. Well, 
maybe John Jameson could get together with Betty Brandt. Oh yeah, that would work. <laughs> Which is what Peter should have done. <laughs> That's Elizabeth um, Banks. We did, we did we did say it on the last one, but we spend every minute that Elizabeth Banks is on screen wishing that she was actually the main female lead in these films. You guys do. I still like Kirsten Dunst, even though I feel like MJ really dropped the ball here. She did a, she did a bad thing. What if they have there is no, there is no film already? There's no film that is not improved by having Elizabeth Banks in it more. Well, that's true. Now, oh, well, the proof might be in the pudding with Power Rangers there, sir. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I bet Power Rangers probably would have been better if be it had a better had film that it would have been without her. <laughs> um, but so when Mary Jane does arrive at the apartment, so I kind of, it soured me a little bit on that. But like I say, I kind of, I think I buy into that relationship more than you guys do. To begin with, how does it work for you as a note to end the movie on it to kind of end the to end that whole thematic thing that Peter Parker has gone oh, Spider-Man, but also the people, my personal life. I love Mary Jane. Can I have Mary Jane if I am Spider-Man? And she turns up and kind of makes the decision for him. Does well, Does that work for you? It it does work for me on the sense that, like, he shouldn't be trying to protect her. Like, if he respects her as a person, he should be including her and make, mm. giving her the decision. Like, that is... That's a, something I feel quite strongly about in that, like, it's fine to lift the relationship from the 60s, but you have to give it a modern interpretation. Because, like, it's a bit Scott Pilgrim-y in that he's supposed to be the hero, but he's actually a bit of a dick if you look at it through that lens. Mm. So I like that they give her the agency to to come and, you know, make that, make that decision. And also, like, I love the fact that the final shot of the movie is Mary Jane sort of looking out of the window, yes. sort of wondering, like, is he coming back? Mm. And, like, yeah. that that kind of shows, even when he's got Mary Jane, he can't have everything because... Now he's sharing this burden, and like it's it's the ne- it's the next step of the conflict, isn't it? Yeah. It's you, you move on from I can't even have a relationship to I'll have a relationship that will be massively compromised by the fact that I'm going out and doing this. Yeah, See, and like the- she's not put her like she's not been put in that position. She's put herself in that position, so it's not like you don't feel like oh he's a dick for being Spider Man. <laughs> you feel like they're both in for some hard times. Hmm. And and for me, the thing that I always felt that the movie was hinting at throughout with that dilemma that Peter has is that this dilemma is always going to exist. And once you acknowledge that you cannot turn your back on Spider-Man, you then have to make the decision of how entirely you turn your back on the other half of your life. And I think it is, I think what the movie is saying is that, look, you've got to have a bit of both. And the question is how much balance you find and the one crucial aspect of this is there is no way you can handle it on your own. If you keep all of this to yourself, you won't handle it. And it is having Aunt May subtly guide him. And it's having MJ coming and saying, look, I know and I still want to be with you. I want to make that sacrifice. And on a personal level for Spider-Man at the end of the movie, it ends with him swinging through the streets going, woohoo! and he is at a point where he's like I can have it all but what's really happened is he has achieved sharing that burden 
Um, and for me, it's a really nice, bittersweet ending that we've got Peter through that arc, but now really what should happen in the next step of this story is figuring out how Peter, with the people he loves, is able to is able to continue this power responsibility uh, with with a little help from his friends, I guess. But it's still not going to be easy. I mean, I would I would, I would see it kind of as bittersweet, but I think it's more. I mean, I I don't know if you're supposed to read it as bittersweet because at the end of the day, it's the end of a Spider-Man film, and it's the kind of triumphant hero shot at the end. For me, I think it's more. Um, it's already giving you a sense of yeah, this probably won't last. It, it's not so much the thing of oh, he's kind of sharing the burden. It's just more yeah, but he's Spider-Man. We know he feels like this now, mm. but something will happen that will shatter this idyllic scenario, which indeed is what does happen in the third film, albeit maybe for slightly different reasons than you would expect. <laughs> because the reasons are that they introduce Gwen Stacy rather than you know kind of his life as Spider-Man causing mm. as much conflict with MJ, but. Um, I, th- I think, you know, as I say, it, it is the classic Spider-Man thing of any time that he's happy, you know that there's going to be something around the corner to make him less so. So I guess in that sense is is why I would see it as bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I mean, I, I guess whichever of those ways you read it, it's a final scene that pays off thematically on this movie. Um, I just I just wish it hadn't didn't have the wedding bit beforehand. Um <laughs> to, to, to really turn me off and sour me on this you can relationship. You see that they just, they just really wanted that visual. Of her in the white dress, it, yeah. It was just, yeah. Um, but it just, and, and, you know, her contrasting with the surroundings of his apartment and stuff. And but, um, has she called him Tiger previous to that moment? Because that feels like a real great, like, oh, we're finally at that point. I'm not sure. And she does. Actually. She says, "Go get him, Tiger," doesn't she? And sends him out the window, basically. Mm. And for me, it felt like, ah, yes, we have reached, we have reached the point in the relationship where, at least for now, Peter and MJ are a kind of uh, iconic. Oh, the rel- classic Peter and MJ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it really works for me. Um, well, I think we're probably coming to an end of our discussion here, so I wonder if you guys have any particular favourite moments you want to bring up from the rest of the film, because uh, I've got a couple. Uh, Bruce Campbell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's pretty good in the first film. He's pretty good in the third film. This is something but he's else. At his best in <laughs> Bruce Campbell as the asshole um, door guy at the theatre such a short point and there's no reason for that scene to, it's like the scene in the lift this is why when you were saying about this film being darker it's like but it does have funny bits and most of the funny bits have no reason to be there other than to just be funny bits and that one is absolutely just I don't know how much yeah, he's validity there is to this but there is there is certainly the rumour out there online that one of the plans that Raimi had for his Spider-Man 4 Spider-Man 5 was Bruce Campbell as Mysterio and mm. that basically the cameos that we see from Bruce Campbell in these three films as the waiter and as the doorman and as the announcer at the at the wrestling arena was this single guy playing these over-the-top kind of theatrical roles because the whole time he was Mysterio. <laughs> that's a great theory. I don't think that's... I mean, <laughs> I like the idea of Bruce Campbell being Mysterio. I don't think the rest of it holds up to any scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I just want it so badly to be true. 
I don't know how much we took. I can't remember how much we talked about it when we did the first film because it was a long time ago. It was one of our earliest episodes. But when this film started and the opening credits started, I was struck maybe again by just how much I love Danny Elfman's theme mm. for these films. Yeah. I really think that it's like at the time it was like, oh, it's pretty good, but it's not, you know, Batman or Superman. But given the way superhero movie themes have largely been so forgettable since, this one really stands out as a really great striking theme tune that really it actually does give me a bit of a shiver and you know it sets me up in anticipation for what i'm about to see in terms of a a great spot i mean i i said on twitter um part way through watching this that i i find it very easy to get emotional about spider-man and i i felt that as this when we were talking about those opening 15 minutes or so of the film I felt that throughout the opening part. I was just and it's similar to what I felt during Civil War. It was just like, oh, this is Spider-Man. <laughs> and that that music actually helps. I think it's a really great and quite underrated um bit of score. I mean, it's one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's biggest sins is that they haven't kept around the same composers for the same film series. They haven't mm. they haven't given characters iconic themes and stuck with them. The one really iconic theme is the Avengers Assemble Avengers, theme. Yeah. Um and yeah. Alan Silvestri is coming back, thank goodness, for um Infinity War. So that's uh that's very good news. But I mean, yeah, you think of you think of the Hans Zimmer Batman theme and the Danny Elfman Spider Man theme and the Danny Elfman Batman theme as well, and they're all kind of you you feel a sense of place with those characters. You hear that and you're like, Yes, that is a that's the sense of who that mm. who I'm with. You know right the, the the only um, the only recent one that gives me that feeling actually is the Flash TV theme. Yes. I get a very similar mm. feeling of the Flash. I love that theme tune as well, and that gives me a similar you know. It's the, gives me a shiver down the it's spine. It's the theme that the runs right over the end credits at the end of every episode, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. Um, and I mean, my final point, something that I loved in this film. Um, I mean, we've we've barely talked about it because so much of the so much of it was embedded in the first film. But for me, this costume is great i love the raised webbing i know you're, you guys aren't as much of a fan but when he's stand no i am james isn't <laughs> when he's standing in that elevator and you can kind of just see him stud still in this like bright lighting and, and i'm just like oh, that suit i just want to rub it uh, <laughs> and i think he i think he looks amazing in motion and flying through the streets fighting dr octopus that is as a visual version of spider-man for the first you know this the first this wasn't the second or third attempt at getting spider-man in terms of you know oh well we didn't get it right 10 years ago what about this second time around this was a franchise that got that costume right the whole way through um and even made it look cool in black but that's a conversation for another day <laughs> but guys my my immediate exposure to more spider-man is not going to be spider-man 3 it's going to be i think some comic some comic book recommendations that you're going to give me now based on spider-man 2 um seamless seb i'll come to you first are you recommending me a spider-man comic i can only assume that you are i am yes um and this comes from we I was talking about the clone saga earlier and this comes from part way through in the kind of early part of the clone saga oh god um <laughs> because, well no because scared. Be, because the thing about the clone saga is that as a whole it's a pretty bad story but at the time there were still good people working on the spider-man 
titles. In particular, um, the writers J.M. DeMattis and Tom DeFalco were both pretty good. J.M. DeMattis was excellent, Tom DeFalco was pretty good. And so some good stories, some good individual stories did come out of the Clone Saga because the other thing about the Clone Saga is it went on for so long that actually you can break it down into lots of shorter stories that all followed on from each other. It's not like it was a 36-part story. It was a bunch of two to four to six parts. It was more a status quo, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. Um, so you get stuff like the famous Amazing Spider-Man issue 400 written by Dematis, which is the issue where Aunt May dies, that you can completely divorce from the context of the Clone Saga and is just one of the best Spider-Man stories ever. And I would, while I wouldn't say one of the best ever, this story that I'm going to recommend you, um, I would put up there as well. It's a four-part story called Web of Death. Um, it could, Because it comes from quite early on in the clone saga run you don't need to know much of the context around it basically at the time there were four ongoing spider-man titles and at this point two of them would tend to follow peter parker and two of them would tend to follow ben riley and this is one of the ones that follows peter parker what it does have in it is kane i mean i've already spoiled who kane is but this is the point at very early on after kane's introduction when he was big mysterious villain and we didn't know who he was or what he was doing or what his motivations were um but so he is in this story, but it is primarily a Doctor Octopus story, and it's one of my favourite Doctor Octopus stories because the majority of the story is actually the two of them talking about their history and their relationship, and Doctor Octopus kind of reveals in this story that he has a slightly surprising view of Spider-Man, and I really like how that informs what happens in this story, and you can extrapolate it back across their relationship over the years and in stuff that would follow like Superior Spider-Man. I just think it's a really good nailing of the character of um, Doctor Octopus. So it's called Web of Death, and it takes place in alternating issues of Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. So it's issues 397 and 398 of Amazing and 220 and 221 of Spectacular. They should all be on Unlimited. Um, and if not, they certainly should be on Comixology. Um, so, you know, you should find it quite easy. But you will have to read them as single issues. It won't have been collected as a book or anything other than just in the middle of one mm. of the Clone Saga books. So, But I just think it's a, it's a really neat little four-part storyline that was quite controversial at the time for some reasons but you'll see when you get to that uh excellent okay well i mean mostly from all of that i'm still reeling from the fact that aunt may died i don't know why i'm surprised but i never i didn't know that my aunt may had ever wasn't died. really her yeah it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> turns her. out it was an actress hired by norman osborne don't get me started <laughs> okay <laughs> i was worried for mercy to may for a while there okay um right <laughs> so um alternating issues from the middle of the clone saga intimidating but i'm excited seb um james what have you got for me i have got probably the classic doctor octopus the most classic doctor octopus story that exists okay uh the one seb mentioned where he tries to marry aunt may (laughs) (laughs) so am i I gonna by the end of this am i gonna have hit all of the like iconic Doc Ock stories, because you gave me Master Planner, you're giving me these two. Um, I've read Superior. Am I going to be missing anything, or am I going to be hitting all of the touchstones here? I mean, there are a lot of good ones, but I think these are the... You'll have hit the famous ones. you'll have hit the famous ones. I mean, it's worth pointing out, if you you hadn't read Superior Spider-Man, I would have been recommending that. That would have been a long read, though. A very long read. you know, just the start of it. Or maybe Dying (laughs) Wish, like the, you know, the lead into it. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, I think, I think Superior Spider-Man is one of those things that, like Alias, a, anyone listening to this podcast, if you want something that's a recommendation that all three of us will completely unequivocally recommend, then Superior Spider-Man is up there. And yeah. Spider-Verse after it, just because it has the fun little <clears throat> bringing him back and finally getting to see the two characters talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, so the issues I'm giving you are some proper like Silver Age cheese. Excellent. Uh, Ama- Amazing Spider-Man 130 and 131. Oh, that's not very much to read, so I'm... Uh... Well, do you know, I was I was nearly going to recommend you an extra issue, which was going to be Amazing Spider-Man 400, and the reason <laughs> for that is to do with my thing about Aunt May having figured out that he's Spider-Man. So if you want to go on and read Amazing 400, feel free, because it stands alone quite well in the middle of things. So okay, yeah. if you want to tack that on, seeing as you've only got six issues from the two of yeah. us, make it seven and read read Amazing 400. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, I'm going to get myself a lot of Doc Ock this week, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, and we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. But we're not going to dive straight into the pitch, are we, Seb? Because there is some unfinished business. Yes, uh, from the previous episode, which if you didn't listen to it, was about Thor. So we had Joe and James pitching against each other rather than me against James because I wasn't there. And so it falls to me to decide which Matt Damon starring film to go for. Are you drunk on power, Are you drunk on... I'm slightly drunk. I'm drunk on power and cause light. Um, (laughs) I'm slightly torn on this because I completely 100% agree with James that Matt Damon doesn't do enough comedy like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back the Goodwill Hunting 2 scene is one of my favourite <laughs> scenes in like any movie ever. it's just so funny um, and so I, I agree with that but I don't think he made a particularly strong pick for what to do with Matt Damon's comedic capabilities because Wonder Man who cares um, you know <laughs> And also, he's already Nathan Fillion, so, you know. Um, I, I, I was a little unimpressed by that. But what I thought I would do, as far as the ventriloquist goes, which was uh, uh, Joe's pick, I was quite pleased that it showed that you'd obviously been listening to, to my suggestions for things, because you would never have even heard of the ventriloquist and Scarface <laughs> if it wasn't for, uh, for this podcast. But I couldn't remember, back when I suggested the ventriloquist and Scarface as a villain for a future Batman film, whether you had... Uh, let that one win (laughs) did you go back and listen so i decided to go back and listen back to our our second ever episode which was our batman 89 episode episode two from the start of last year and i decided that whatever you had whatever decision you had made over my choice of ventriloquist would be the deciding this is great because it's just as corrupt as my normal decision making (laughs) process I, if honestly um, said, so, if this doesn't end with you awarding yourself the win, something has gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so back on that episode, um, it was it was picture a future Batman villain, and I had gone for ventriloquist and Scarface, and James had picked uh, Jason Todd, I think, <laughs> rightly, and. Um, you sort of you said you would like the idea of using Jason Todd, but only like down the line after doing a Death in the Family um, film. Yeah, so in the smart. immediate term, you did pick the ventriloquist, yeah. which means that <sighs> yep, I am awarding myself the win <laughs> for having uh, even introduced you to Scarface in the first place. Amazing. Okay, <laughs> so Seb wins. Start sending last out week. bungs or something. <laughs> 
in a dramatic twist, Seb wins last week's pitch that he was not present for, um, which I, I think is the that epitomizes how this section normally runs on the podcast, um, and and might be a precursor to my decision making process here because this week's pitch, um, I was watching this film and I was thinking it's been a while since Toby Maguire has been in. Some big movies. I mean, like, it's, you know, it's been a while since he was, you know, he's not even the last Spider-Man. He's the second to last Spider-Man. Tobey Maguire needs to be cast in a superhero movie. Maybe, you know, do a Brandon Ralph, get, you know, cast in um, a small role here or there, even on a TV show. So what I want to know is if you could pick any role for Tobey Maguire now in a new superhero movie or TV show, what would it be? And James, I'll come to you first. Oh, it's tough. I mean, you know how bad I am with casting. Um, I mean, you the... think that Tobey Maguire should be Wonder Man because his comedic <laughs> talents haven't been played up enough. No, I mean, I think if I like, assuming there's a sort of moratorium on using him as any version of Spider Man. No, <clears> he can be Peter Porker. Ooh, I've just done myself a good pitch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think Joe's already won this week. <laughs> no, Animated um, Spider-Man film from Lord and Miller. Toby Maguire voices Peter Parker. Right, that's what you've got to beat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I can't. Uh, what? Like the only thing that sort of sprang to mind for me was I can imagine him as a better version of Iceman than we've seen in on screen yet, because. Ooh. Iceman, as we've seen him, is not re- does not really relate to the character in the comics. Like he has the powers, but beyond that, there's no, none of the personality and stuff. And Iceman's quite an iconic personality. Like he's, you know, he's quippy but angsty and sort of in the. Sp- he's a, he's a, he's a nerd. Yeah. he's kind of yeah exactly yeah. yeah. And like Tobey Maguire, can- like not a nerd, like a geeky nerd, but he's just he's a bit of a. He's a bit hapless, yeah. kind of. And, like, yeah. you know, bad with women and... Well, so bad with women that he has been revealed to be <laughs> gay, like a closeted gay, which is something we haven't seen on screen again. Like, they've had the stuff with Rogue, but they never explored any more than that. Um, and so, yeah, I think Tobey Maguire could... could bring some depth to Iceman and I acknowledge that there are not many people out there who would you know are crying out to see more depth for Iceman but I am one of them and I would like to <laughs> I think Tommy Maguire could pull it off so a comics accurate Iceman in the X-Men franchise or maybe in one of these TV shows that they're, they're doing now yeah like they could check him in Legion or something Ooh, okay. quite happily Tobey yeah. Maguire as a comics accurate or Deadpool. Iceman he he would be Legion. good in the Deadpool franchise as well if you want to do another X-Men character in the sequel. Okay. You know, that sort of that sort of more I think you've hit yeah. it on the head by saying put him in Deadpool. That more comicsy yeah. tone. Okay, right. Well, I like it. I don't know whether I like it more than Peter Parker. <laughs> 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 but we'll wait and see what Seb's going to pitch. Seb, what do you want to do with Tobey Maguire? This is one of those ones where I, I feel like withdrawing because I think James's is really strong. I, I, I want to see that happen now. I think that's a, that's a really good chance. Hey, Particularly, look, as I say, Seb, you've hit it with putting him in You've got to pick one winner. You don't get to pick it. Oh, no, sorry, James's is better than whatever I could say. I'll be the judge of that. 
Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I haven't really brought my A game for this one anyway. I, my main thought was you just have to put him in one of the Tom Holland Spider-Man films um, in much the same way as having John Wesley Ship in the Flash TV show. Um, you can have him push Stan Lee in front of some rubble. <laughs> Um, so after toying with the idea of having him actually potentially play the Scarlet Spider, um, I thought that was too complicated to introduce this early into Tom Holland's burgeoning career. Um, I thought that actually, given that I think Tobey Maguire would be quite good at playing an embittered, like older former nerd, um, see if you can guess what villain I would quite like to see Tobey Maguire play in a future Tom Holland Spider-Man film what? knowing everything you know about me what villain do you think I would cast him as wait an embittered former nerd that's that's an element I would put on the character it's not necessarily an element but it's there sometimes Mysterio? in the character yeah How many, just I'm, sure we've done, I'm sure we've done Mysterio before <laughs> Many, I'm sure we many have. Times. It doesn't. It doesn't mean I can't. I'm going to keep pitching Mysterio <laughs> until he turns up in a film. But I, w- I would like to see Tobey Maguire in a Tom Holland Spider-Man sequel as Mysterio. Oh, see, well, I, w- I was thinking you were going to say is like a toy boy Uncle Ben for Marisa Tomei. It's only a ten-year age gifer- difference. That's viable. Um... No, I'd, I'd cast myself for that. But... <laughs> um, okay, so I need to choose between Mysterio. Iceman and Peter Porker. Well, I think after being hoisted by my own petard already on this podcast, I can't pick myself again because it will come back to haunt me. Um, and seeing as though, yes, Seb has already voted for James's answer as well. Iceman in Deadpool 2, Tobey Maguire. I'm on board for that. Um, Finally. J- <laughs> how, long, how long has it been, James? I, I, I've lost track. <laughs> <laughs> Someone out there should be keeping track for us and just thought, yes, that is James' second win on the pitch <laughs> in the podcast. I, I started keeping track and even I lost interest. <laughs> in track, yeah. oh, excellent. Okay. But yes, that is it for this week's show. Um, don't forget, we have also this week released our bonus Comic-Con news special, which is now becoming a bit of an annual tradition. Um, there's Even if we'd have wanted to put the news in the main episode this week, um, we couldn't have possibly fit it in because there was so much to discuss from Comic-Con. Um, and if you weren't listening to the mini-sode last week, um, you might have remembered on the last main podcast that I mentioned about the news segment and we we were wanting your feedback about whether to keep doing it on the main podcasts or whether it was something that you think we could drop. Um, it was an overwhelmingly positive response from you guys. You all wanted us to keep the news, and so there is no danger of that being dropped at any point in the future. It will just be for the next couple of episodes while I'm away on honeymoon that there will not be any news on the main episodes. After that, it will be regular service resumed. So... Um, you can, you'll definitely still be able to get your news in the next few weeks on that bonus episode and on the mini-sodes, and then we'll be back to normal in about a month or so. Um, but if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice, and support us over at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of Cinematic Universe at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.
So that's it, huh? We're the Patsies? We're some kind of suicide squad? Hey, that's the name of the movie! Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Suicide Squad. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.